0: You're listening to episode 205 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast. In this broadcast, the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. I'm back once again with 2007 alumnus of Mid-America Reformed Seminary, Nick LeMay. Thanks once again, Nick, for joining me for this podcast on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit.
1: It's my pleasure, Jared.
0: Well, we heard you last time speak a little bit uh, introducing this topic, uh, what we most famously call the unpardonable sin that we read of in Matthew 12. Um, you gave us a little bit of historical interpretation of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What we want to look at and hear from you today is an exegesis, if you will, on Matthew 12, 22 through 32 in context and what, what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Is And we we read of, you know, what you could call a rejection narrative to Christ that builds to this climax in Matthew 12, where the opposition of Jesus has this pronouncement made against them from our Lord. Could you talk a little bit about uh, the larger context in Matthew 12 and how it builds up to this blasphemy statement that Jesus pronounces against the opposition?
1: Of course, uh, it is. It is really important to see Matthew 12, the blasphemy of the Spirit in Matthew 12, in its broader context, right? So when Jesus begins his ministry in Matthew, if we're just, and this, there's, the parallels to Mark are are also um, rather clear, although Mark is condensing this same material into a much shorter and more concise package. But you have Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 beginning his earthly ministry, and he's calling his disciples, and he's out preaching the kingdom of heaven, and that it's at hand. And you actually, you get that throughout these two narratives. So I think there are really, from Matthew 4.12, where Jesus is beginning his ministry, all the way through Matthew 12, and the blasphemy of against the Spirit, you can break it up into two rejection narratives, and they parallel one another. So you have the first rejection narrative, where it begins with Jesus proclaiming the kingdom, calling his disciples, and then he there's there's a section of extended teaching, where Jesus acts as lawgiver. We know this is Sermon on the Mount, followed by a section of healing, forgiveness of sins, open displays of his lordship, which ultimately ultimately ends in what we might consider to be the initial rejection by the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 9, 32 to 38. And that ends with, after that initial rejection, that ends with Jesus looking upon the people with compassion. And, And notice why he's looking upon the people with compassion, because they're like sheep without a shepherd, So this is really a condemnation of Israel's leadership. They're not shepherds. Now that gets followed up by what I call the second rejection narrative, which goes from Matthew 10 through Matthew 12. And the parallels are interesting because you have the calling of the 12 and they're being sent out. You have then an extended teaching to the 12, just like you had the Sermon on the Mount in the first narrative. You have now an extended teaching directly for the 12, and the second one, that's also followed up by healings and miracles, which further, and and of course, we understand these healing stories and these miracle stories to be um, signs given by the Holy Spirit to who Jesus is. And they're to be understood by the people. And I think they are understood by the people. You see the people as they see Jesus healing, as they see Jesus performing miracles, they wonder, they marvel at, at these. They continually ask, could this be the one? And that all culminates in this final rejection, this, or we might call it the definitive rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders in Matthew 12 after the healing of the man possessed by a demon who is mute and blind. And that, that's interesting because when you get to Matthew 12, We just read that a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And that is really that's all that's said about the healing miracle itself. We don't get any information about how Jesus did the miracle, whether he spoke it, whether he did anything else. Uh, We don't. There's really not a lot of information about the healing itself. But what's important here is the result, the response to it, and the response is twofold you have the response of the people you have the response of the pharisees the, the leadership the response of the people is can this be the son of david they are seeing so clearly that this could be the son of david now if the people are seeing clearly that this is the son of david it, it's it's almost impossible that the pharisees didn't hmm. understand the signs as well and jesus suggests as much that they ought to have understood the times that they mm. ought to have understood these signs, and that they did, but they rejected anyway. And so when they when the Pharisees hear, now notice verse 24, Matthew 12, 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, so the the comment of the Pharisees that it's by Beelzebel, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons, it's in response to the people saying, Could this be the son of David? It's not even so much in response to Jesus healing, but it's in response to the people's reaction to it. And they're beginning to receive and accept Jesus as Messiah based on the signs of the Spirit, that the Spirit's giving. And so you have, this is is the culmination of the rejection narrative after, of course, chapter 12, you really have the road to the cross. Yeah. Right, you have the, the whole rest is sort of passion narrative. Mm-hmm.
0: So you just talked about the context of, of Matthew 12, building up to this rejection of the leaders, pronouncing that they've committed this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But you also talk about in your article, this idea of the culpability factor involved in all of this, where, you know, the people were perhaps less culpable than the teachers who knowingly rejected Jesus. Could you flesh that out a little bit for us?
1: Yes. I think there's a a correlative relationship here between um, the extent of the people's understanding of who Jesus is of what his of his person and work who he is what he's doing and the level of culpability of their religious leaders in publicly rejecting him so he says the people's understanding grows so too does the hardness of the leaders hearts so too does their rejection of Jesus and i mean you have for example it's really interesting as Jesus is speaking throughout we said he's proclaiming the kingdom of heaven but in the context in the contest here with the Pharisees as they accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Satan he he tells them if if I cast out demons by Beelzebul well who do your sons cast them out by him Satan is divided against Satan how can how can his kingdom stand right um but he says, but if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, notice, notice the change in language. Throughout, he's been saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But here he says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so he presses his claim upon the Pharisees, who then definitively reject that claim. So the, the culpability fact, the level of culpability corresponds to the level of knowledge. and And I think this is also an important aspect. And the exercise and use of authority. So, Jesus is claiming the authority of the kingdom of God. And know that Matthew usually uses that circumlocution, kingdom of heaven. But here he's very blunt. He's very direct with them that the kingdom of God isn't just in their midst, it isn't at hand, it's come upon them. And the response of the Pharisees is with knowledge to use their authority to reject Jesus and teach the people to reject him too. Hmm. Uh, The important part about that second aspect of the use of authority is that we understand the nature of it. Whose authority are they exercising? They're not exercising some authority inherent in them. They're exercising God's authority, right? They sit in the seat of Moses, Jesus says, right? He says, they sit in the seat of Moses to do what they say, don't do what they do. They're exercising an authority which derives from God himself, and they're using God's authority illegitimately to lead the people away from his, his Christ, his Messiah. Mm-hmm. And so the, that, the, the factor of culpability here is, as it corresponds to those two things, knowledge, true knowledge, and the improper use of authority to teach the people to reject God, to reject his Messiah.
0: By way of summary, then, when we talk about that, are, are you saying, as I, th- I think you do in your journal, that article, that this blasphemy against the Spirit, then, is a particular type of dangerous false teaching and ability to commit limited to teachers and leaders in the church?
1: that that's right that's what i think is going on here so if you 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 go back to the to the different interpretations that we discussed in the previous episode and you see there's there's really no consensus about who can commit this who can't there seems to be a general consensus in the early church that especially heretics and schismatics can commit this sin and and i think that's generally true if you understand heretics and schismatics to also be those who exercise authority within the church mm-hmm. in 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 the teaching office. So my argument is that it's only the teachers that are able to commit this sin. Now, clearly, those who follow the false teachers, I mean, the, the blind lead the blind, they both fall into a pit. But it's not as though those who followed them have committed the sin. It's those who teach and lead. That are able to blaspheme the spirit. The others don't possess any authority or exercise God's authority in teaching, but these ones do. And so you have the you have a correspondence between the false teachers in the New Testament, particularly here. You have in Matthew twelve, you have the Pharisees, but throughout the rest of the New Testament, you have teachers as the focus. You. What does Peter say? Just as there were false prophets among them, so there will be false teachers among you. And he and you think about the way Peter speaks of those false teachers: it's springs without water, people who are you know for people for whom blackest darkness is reserved because they teach the people and lead them astray by their teaching. And you think back to the Old Testament. We have, for example, in Deuteronomy 13, the condemnation of false prophets who were to be put to death. And here. In the New Testament, you see the example of Jesus, and of course, even the apostles, who are extending the hope of repentance and forgiveness to all manner of sin and sinners, except, it seems, to those who are, who, those who teach falsely. Who, in particular, that false teaching is? It's not any old false teaching. It's a type of false teaching that is malicious and willful, and knowing, and involves a rejection of the gospel, a leading people away from Christ, and to follow a different gospel, as Paul would put it in Galatians. I think you see this manifest also in Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, where he talks about those who build on the foundation with, you know, wood, hay, and stubble, and those who build with gold and precious stones, and it's all tested by fire. Those who build with precious stones and and good materials, that they, what they build lasts. Those who build with wood, hay, and stubble, what they've built, that, that gets burnt up. But they're saved as through fire. But then, so he's talking about two people who are building on the foundation. It's just how they build matters. They're still building on the foundation. But then there are those who would seek to destroy the church of God by their teaching. Paul has in view here teachers, those who are building, those who are building the church. Those who build in such a those who are not building at all, but rather tearing down, those who are striking at the foundation itself. What does Paul say? God will destroy them. So you you have a real you have a distinction among teachers in the New Testament, and I think that's what you have here. You have a distinction between the in Matthew twelve a distinction between the people and their teachers. And so I I, I argue that the blasphemy of the spirit, and it's supported I think by The testimony of the whole New Testament and even what we find in the Old Testament is that the, the sin is so serious, not because of some personal individual sin, but because it's a sin that is committed against the body. It's a sin that's committed against God's people in leading them astray from the worship of God, from the knowledge of God, and in particular from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, to another gospel, which brings damnation upon people,
0: we think of another passage of scripture, like Hebrews six, that speaks very heavily about the falling away of some who have tasted heavenly gifts and enlightenment. Could that, in some ways, be related to uh, this notion of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit?
1: I, I think so. I, I, in fact, I mean, this is one of those difficult passages. This and Hebrews ten is also. Uh, for some a matter of no small consternation and I, I think there's ways of understanding both of those texts that that fit rather comfortably with what I've just explained about the blasphemy of the spirit as being a sin committed by teachers I and mean, if you think about you know what the author of Hebrews says here that leaving the elementary doctrines of Christ and going on to maturity or those elementary doctrines being the, the foundation, the basic things you know, this is actually a a phrase which you find also in Galatians. So mm-hmm. There's some overlap here between Hebrews 6 and Galatians. The author of Hebrews in verse 4 says, 6-4 says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt, I. So, in the article, of course, I go into greater detail. But we're asking these questions: Who is it that can never be restored to repentance? What does it mean to have once been enlightened? What does it mean to have tasted the heavenly gift, or you know, to in a sense to participate? To share in the Spirit, to have this fellowship in the Spirit and tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. The, the argument I try to make in the article, which I won't reproduce here because it's more than than we have time for, is that the sharing in the Holy Spirit has to do with those people who participate in the work of the Spirit. Well, what is the work of the Spirit? Well, essentially, and this is of course what you see in throughout the Gospels, that the Spirit The work of the Spirit is to bear witness to Christ. The Spirit's job is to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's to bear witness to who Jesus is. And it's the Spirit that's calling men to repentance, that's sealing the work of Christ in their hearts. So in Hebrews 6, you have people who are, they've once been enlightened. They have a knowledge. They have a participation in the Spirit. And I, I take that to mean that they've participated in the work of the Spirit that is the proclamation of the Word of God. They've tasted the goodness of the Word. They've known, in some sense, the power of the age to come mm-hmm. um, through the preaching of the Gospel or the preaching of of God's Word. What's, what's the problem in Hebrews? Well, the, One of the big problems in Hebrews is that there are some who are Being tempted to go back to the the sacrifices, to the temple sacrifices, under threat of persecution, under um, threat of loss. There are it appears as there are those who are teaching them to do so, who are trying to get them to go back and offer those sacrifices which can never take away sins. Now that Christ And I think this is also what's going on in Hebrews 10, where he talks about. Trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant, I I I think what's what's going on in Hebrews ten, of course, is he's saying that those who go back to the sacrifices of the temple, once Christ has offered the definitive sacrifice once for all for the forgiveness of sins to make perfect one for all time those who are being sanctified, that to go now go back to the shadows and types is to trample underfoot the blood of the son of of the son of God. So. I think in Hebrews 6, what you do have is, I think you have teachers in view. I also think there's probably some evidence of that if you compare the language of Hebrews 6 with Galatians and what Paul is saying there. Paul certainly has teachers in view. He has those in view who would preach to them a different gospel. And Paul goes so far in Galatians as to say, I wish they would emasculate themselves, right? they go all the way. And in a sense... Cut themselves off. So I, I, I think Hebrews 6 and 10 both point us in that same general direction.
0: Concluding this series on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit next time, Reverend LeMay will take us through the implications for the church today in terms of identifying false teachers and provides encouragement, warning, an exhortation for Christians wrestling with this difficult passage. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider subscribing and sharing it with friends or family. Your support helps us bring more engaging content to your ears and helps us foster not just a community of lifelong learners, but thoughtful practitioners. I'm Jared Luchbor. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.